you have your Bibles, grab them and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's where we'll be at this morning. Uh, a couple weeks ago on Easter, we started in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, because it speaks there of the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So then last week, we went back and picked up the first couple verses. Um, and last week, I had mentioned that Peter uh, seems... <laughs> like, I don't know, as you kind of profile him in the scriptures, it seems like maybe uh, he was one of those guys that couldn't just say hello quickly, um, because even in his greeting, even in his hello, um, he brings in all sorts of theological depth and has a lot to say. There's more evidence of that in the passage that we'll look at today uh, and also next week, and just uh, kind of a little neat little fact here, but in, in the original language in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 are all one long, long run-on sentence. And uh, so again, just more evidence that Peter, once he gets going, he's not too worried about grammar um, or punctuation. He's just pouring out uh, the greatness of our salvation. And so what we're going to be looking at today specifically is verses 6 through 9, because again, two weeks ago we looked at 3 through 5. But I want to begin to read this morning. Uh, in verse 3, and I will read all the way through verse 9, uh, even though 6 through 9 is where we will pri- what we'll primarily be looking at. Peter says this, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though, now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and Filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray just one more time briefly. Father, we, we ask for your blessing now upon your word. We acknowledge that it is not, your word is not the sword of the Eric or the sword of any preacher. It is the sword of the Spirit. And Father, we pray that your Spirit would take the sword and do work on our hearts this morning. Um, cut away whatever needs to be cut away Um, whether it's our flesh or strongholds of the enemy or love of the world whatever it is just cut it away Father that we may have hearts that are able to behold you and to see you as you are in Jesus name I pray Amen Uh, so you guys know most of you know that I have a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and, uh, which means that I have a 7th grader, a 5th grader, a 3rd grader, and a preschooler. Um, 
And uh, so with the older two especially, uh, throughout the course of this past year, we'd homeschooled the last couple of years, but they've been going to public school this last year, which has been great. <laughs> um, but I help them a lot with their homework at night. And uh, remember, the, you guys remember that show? Uh, maybe, I don't know if it's still on or not, but Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? You guys ever watch that? Okay, I am definitely not smarter than a fifth grader and definitely not a seventh grader. And Conrad, if you can put up some of those. So this has been, next one, next one. Ugh. Next one. Okay, just, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't want to traumatize anybody this morning, but, and again, some of you are like, that's, that's nothing, that's easy, and when, I thought it was easy, like, I thought it would all come back to me, but, but, it, but it hasn't, and so that's kind of the world I've been living in, uh, you know, helping them with their homework at night, and I'm like, Dad, I don't know how to do this, I'm like, I don't either. <laughs> Siri, how do you find the side of a, um, has been a lot of what we've been what we've been doing. And so it may just be because I've had triangles and, you know, parallelograms and all this different stuff kind of in my brain lately. But, but I want to show you kind of the way that I, that I see this text. And so if I can get that next one up there, Conrad. But this is kind of the way that I see this text. It's kind of like a algebra, geometry, I don't know, I don't even know what that is. Algebra, geometry. Anyway, whatever. Geometry, okay, thank you. See, I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. Um, but the way I just kind of see this text is you've got these three main ideas in this text, or these words. You've got joy, suffering, and faith. And, and I guess as I've been studying this this past week, it, I just kind of picture this text as like this triangle. And what I want to do this morning, though, is I want to explore the connection between these things. So just like in those math problems where it's like, you know, they give you this angle or this, uh, you know, or this side or whatever, then you've got to kind of figure out another side that's kind of what I want to do this morning, is I want to look, um, and this is just kind of the order that they come in in the text, I want to look at the connection between joy and suffering, and then I want to look, look at the connection between suffering and faith, and then I want to look at the connection between faith and joy. Um, and he's just saying amen, it's all right, okay. Um, and, and so that's what we're going to kind of look at and how we're going to kind of work, work our way through this. And all these things, joy, suffering, and faith, these are things that are very real, in the Christian life, and there are things that we all encounter, and not just the, the, the Christian life, although I suppose that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have faith if you're not a believer. You might have faith in something false or whatever, um, but these things are, are things that our lives bump into, and it's hard sometimes to hold them all together, and so my hope is that, uh, I think it's the same hope that Peter had as he wrote uh, to the people that he was shepherding, um, in these early churches, is that as we explore these things, uh, that it's going to help us have a grid for the reality of the world that we live in, where we do have this great salvation, and God has done something in our hearts, and yet outwardly, things are hard at times. Amen? At times, there is suffering and pain and relational pain, physical pain, emotional pain, disillusionment that... Um, we just don't know what to do with. And so Peter is going to help us, I believe. And so let's, let's look at the first connection, uh, joy and suffering, the connection between joy and suffering. So again, look at verse 6, and he starts off here, and again, there's a reason why I wanted to read verses 3 through 5, but he says, in this you rejoice. Now, what is this? Well, this is what he just talked about in verses 3 through 5. So he says, in this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? Our great salvation. 
that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that idea of living, it's not just like alive for a little bit and, and then uh, uh, you know, not alive tomorrow or dead in the future. It's, living, it's eternally living. That is our hope. It's alive. This is our salvation. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so because Jesus is our Savior and he is resurrected, went through death, conquered death, now lives forever, our salvation lives forever as well in him. If our Savior is eternally alive, the one that saves us, then we can have a living hope that we will be forever alive because he now lives forever to make intercession for us and to save to the uttermost, the Bible says, those who have put their faith and trust in him. And so verse 6, when Peter says, in this you rejoice, he's saying, we rejoice in this salvation. However, he goes on and he says, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So here's where the suffering comes in. And with this connection between joy and suffering, between joy and being grieved or mourning. And there's a couple things I just want to say about this. Number one is, is that this is real. Is that this is a reality that you've got to have a grid for. Is that if you think that coming to Jesus just means that everything's always going to be easy And there's going to be no cause of pain or suffering or anything that could come into your life that could possibly grieve you, then you are going to be very disillusioned when that pain and when that suffering comes into your life. Um, And what Peter's saying is that we, we don't rejoice in trials. We rejoice in the hope of this great salvation in the midst of trials. It's similar to what James says in James chapter 1. Excuse me. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And if you just stop there, you're like, Man, I don't, what? Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds? But then he goes on, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And this is what Peter's saying here. We we don't rejoice in the trial. We don't rejoice in that which grieves us or that which has brought suffering into our life, but we rejoice in our salvation in the midst of it because it's doing something. Guys, every single hurt and pain and difficulty in your life, it does not matter what it is. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's why he calls it here, he says, various trials. It's not, it's not just a limited scope or a limited category. Any sort of pain, any sort of suffering, and I would argue even suffering that's brought into your life because of your own ignorance or your own sin, which we all have that type of suffering too. It is allowed into our life, whether by our own doing or by not our own doing, something that has happened to us for the purpose of refining our faith. That, that, that word there in, um, in verse 7, where, or I'm sorry, verse 6, for a little while, and he says, if necessary. The idea here is, is that there's purpose in it, is that it, it is necessary. In fact, I believe the NIV translated, like, if at this time you had to, the NIV says, you had to, or you have been grieved by various, by various trials. So guys, there is purpose in your trials, and in the midst of this, we have this salvation, and we have to learn 
to hold these two things together, knowing that because we have this hope of salvation, when this trial comes in as well, that it's producing something. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's doing something for us. It's not meaningless. You know, in in Acts chapter 14, um, Paul is traveling around on his missionary journeys, and he's... uh, and this is the message. I love that Luke puts this in here because he just gives a little summary. He doesn't tell us everything that Paul taught, but he just gives us a little summary of what Paul was teaching to these churches. In Acts 14, verse 21, 22, he says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, which are cities that they had previously preached the gospel in. And here's what he says. It says, Luke sums it up this way. He says, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how Luke sums up the message that Paul, as he was strengthening these Christians, he said, here was the primary message. Guys, it is through many trials, through them, that we will enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is our joy. That is what we rejoice in. That is our salvation. It is in us Partly already, but not not fully yet. We don't see it out here, but it's in us and it's coming fully someday and we rejoice in that and we go through and we go through the trials. And we have to hold these two things together. And what what I want to point out here is that yet we, we rejoice in our salvation. We don't rejoice in the trial. At the same time, and this is so important and so often overlooked, is that if we are to have joy in the midst of trials... Part of what Peter is saying here as well is that that requires that we have permission to grieve in the midst of trials. Please hear me. That's what he says. He goes, you you rejoice in this. Although now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. He's saying you've been grieved. And he's not rebuking them for their grief. He's saying you have joy in something else, but you you have this grief. And guys, so many times, and guys, listen, all of us shepherd all of us, okay? In the Bible, there there are elders, pastors, shepherds, and yeah, we have a primary role in leading in that regard, but we are all here to shepherd each other. That's why we want you to get plugged into a small church, why we want you, you know, people to know you more than they just know you on Sunday morning, okay? Um, But we all shepherd each other. And listen, if we're going to shepherd each other well, in a way that is healthy and life-giving and builds up the life of Christ in us and causes each one of us to grow into maturity, into all that God has for us, we have to learn how to shepherd each other well. And part of that is, guys, when somebody is hurting and grieving, don't just say, don't worry, be happy. It's all right. Don't worry about it. I, I, it makes me want to throw something. I was looking for something to throw there. Thankfully, there was nothing. But, but uh, I wouldn't have actually thrown it. But, but like, guys, we, we cannot just give nice, little, simple, pat answers to the extreme pain that people are experiencing in their lives. We have got to obey what the Bible says in that Yes, we encourage each other. We spur one another on. We do like Paul did to these churches in Antioch, Lystra, and Iconium. We say, keep, keep going. The kingdom of God is coming. It's in you and it's already, but it's not yet. And it's coming. Go through it. But at the same time, we do what Jesus said. We, we weep with those who weep. 
He said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. That when God or Jesus sees somebody weeping or crying, as people were at the death of his friend Lazarus and his friends Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, he doesn't just say, don't worry, be happy, guys. He stands there and he weeps with them. And this, this is something that, ha- that guys, we, we have to grow in. And I feel like this is something that the Lord wants us to get because I feel like we've seen this a lot over the last couple weeks. And again, I'm saying this, like I, I, we've seen this in the Word and I'm seeing it in the Word as we're going. It's, nothing, it's not just a hobby horse that I'm on right now, but it's something that I'm seeing in the Scriptures as we're plugging through them. Like as we've looked in the book of Psalms, and as we've seen already in some places um, in, the, in the book of Peter, is that we have to be able to hold these two things that seem like they don't go together, namely joy and grief and joy and sorrow. We have to be able to hold them together. Um, did you guys see this movie? Can I get that next slide up there, Conrad? Did you guys see this movie, Inside Out, Pixar? If you don't have kids, you probably didn't see it. Welcome to my life, though. Um, but this was, I don't know, this came out a year or two ago, but this was like, I was, so, like, this was one of the most brilliant movies to me. And again, it's just a little kid's cartoon, and it's fairly entertaining. But the, the storyline is that you've got these characters, disgust, fear, joy, sadness, and anger, and, which are obviously emotions. And these emotions are they're like these little characters that are, live inside this little girl. I forget what her name is. And she's like maybe 12, 13-ish years old. And all these, these little glowing sphere ball things that you see, those are all throughout the movie. I mean, they're just everywhere. And because every single one of those is a moment of this little girl's life, is a moment that she remembers. And so as she's young, every one of these moments is, which again, these balls represent, every one of these moments is marked by just simply one of those things. It's marked by either joy or fears, the purple, or a green one is, is, is disgust, or red is anger, blue, blue is sadness. And as you see these things everywhere, there's just, it's just one. It's just one color. Well, the, the, the tension or the plot line of the movie is that as the, the little girl that, again, these emotional characters live, live inside, as she moves towards becoming a teenager, towards adolescence, um, things begin to get a little bit more complicated. And so all of a sudden, these balls begin to come around, and they're not just yellow anymore. One might be yellow and blue, or one might be both yellow and red. And so the whole storyline is following these little characters, which are her emotions, inside the movie as they're like, what, what, what's happening? How can this be? But here's the thing. In the end, and then, you know, it kind of resolves at the end, and, <coughs> and they see that this is acceptable, and it all, and it all makes sense. But it's a beautiful illustration um, if that doesn't make sense, I apologize. Go watch the movie. It's probably free on Netflix at this point or something. But anyway, the, the point is that in, in the, the story, the little girl, as she becomes mature, things just aren't simple anymore. These moments aren't just yellow or aren't just blue or aren't just green. They're both. And as we grow in maturity in Christ, guys, we have to have a grin. If we're going to shepherd each other well, for, there is joy, but there is also sorrow. And both can be simultaneously true, and we need to not be simplistic in thinking that it just needs to be one or the other. Because the reality is, is that we do live in the kingdom of God, and it is already, but it is not yet. And that it is through many trials and tribulations 
that we enter the kingdom of God, but we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and so we rejoice in that as we go through it, not in the trial. Are you with me? You follow? And also along with that, I would just say this morning, if you are hurting, if you are in pain, if you are grieving, please hear me. It is not because something is wrong with you. And if I can be, I don't want to be overly intense here and I don't want to miss, please hear what I'm saying. I don't want to miscommunicate this. But guys, I have talked with people that have sincerely loved the Lord and have, beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind, although ultimately God's the only one that knows everybody's heart, they have been born again. And yet they have been brought even to the brink at times of suicide. I'm not saying that's everybody's experience. I'm not saying God wishes that for your life. But I'm saying is that we, in order to shepherd people well, need to have a grid that not just light, simple suffering, but that extreme, heavy suffering is possible in the midst of the Christian life. And we have got to be willing to sit and to grieve and to weep with those who weep while at the same time not giving pat answers, but saying, the kingdom is coming. Don't give up. Don't give up. Are you with me? Got to be able to do that. So that's the connection between joy and suffering. And all these, I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said. But secondly, the connection between suffering and faith. Between suffering and faith. He goes on, and he says, Again, these have come, you've been grieved by these various trials, so that, everybody say, so that. So that, there's purpose in it. Again, it's necessary. What is the purpose? So that the tested genuineness, or I believe the NASB says the proof. I'll explain this a little bit, but the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is um, setting before them here a very specific illustration and image in his letter. And that is of something that has been tried through the fire and purified. Namely, what he's talking about here, he compares it to gold in a sense. And there's, there's a comparison with gold, but there's also a contrast. The comparison is that just like you, you cannot, here's the thing with gold, you cannot destroy pure gold. You put it in the fire, it will melt down, it will become liquid, but you cannot destroy it. It will only be purified. And the way that you purified it was through the fire. You heated that puppy up until it melted down, and then those impurities, those other metals that it might be mixed with were able, when it was liquid, to be scooped away. Whereas before they were inside and they were sodden, they were hidden. And they couldn't be gotten to, they couldn't, be, have, they couldn't have been taken out. But when the fire comes, it's melted, the dross, which is those impurities, rises to the top and you're able to scoop that off and have a more purified version of the gold that you had before. And what Peter is saying here is that trials come into our life for this purpose. This is why God brings them and allows them, is so that our faith would be purified. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, as I look at my life, 
I, I have faith in Jesus Christ, but there's so much purification that has already happened and that still needs to happen. Because my faith in Jesus Christ, and I don't know if you'd be willing to admit that this is true for your life as well, but my faith in Jesus Christ, oh, it's, guys, it's not every day. It's not every moment of every day that I believe that he's good. It's not every moment of every day that I believe that he's great. It's not every moment of every day that I believe that he's glorious and that he's gracious. There is still dross in my faith. There's still impurities in my faith. And God wants to refine it. And I think there's, again, and and the reason that this is good news, let me continue to drill down here and explain, is for two reasons. Is that one, that God wants us to know that what we have is extremely valuable. Or to put it another way, he, he wants us to have the most valuable form of that which we already have. Okay? So it, it, it's kind of like this, like, like we don't realize what we have in having a faith in Jesus. So many times throughout the show, everybody's like, give me more faith, give me more faith. And, and Jesus, like even the disciples at one point, I believe it's in Luke chapter 17, they said to Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus goes on and he says this, he goes, if you had faith just the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain, be picked up and tossed into the midst of the sea. What's his point? It's not the amount of your faith. It's do you have a pure version, just a mustard seed, but it's pure, of real faith that's been refined. And so Jesus, what Peter's saying is that it's good news when trials come into our life that our faith gets refined, that we would have a purified, valuable version. Okay, many of you ladies, or guys, you know, if you got like gold necklaces on, or gold chains, or gold jewelry of something this morning, that the reason you wear that on your finger, around your neck, or whatever, is that it's been purified. You paid a good price, or maybe your husband or somebody paid a good price for it. And they paid a good price for it because it wasn't just this raw chunk of gold that they found and still had all the impurities and the dross in it. And it but it didn't really glimmer and shine that much. It, had, it was valuable because it went through the fire. To say it another way, it's like, I, you know, I don't, uh, there's never been a gold rush in Ohio, as far as I know. Maybe there has been. But, you know, imagine that you're digging in your backyard and it would be entirely possible, let's say that there was gold, and you're digging in your backyard to come across real gold, real authentic gold as it's found. And yet, you might not ever know it because it didn't really glimmer and it didn't really shine and it still had a bunch of impurities in it. And so you would have something that's very valuable, but you didn't recognize it as valuable. You follow me? And so all of it, we, we have this faith, and it's extremely valuable. But Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand just how valuable this is. Let me purify it for you through the fire. Let me pull away the impurities so that you can see just how beautiful, just how shiny this thing really is. And what's valuable about a faith is that, guys, First John tells us that it is our faith that overcomes the world. That if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, it is you who is an overcomer. This is why when, in the book of Acts, you know, if you guys are doing the E2 course, part of our reading this past week was the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. 
Is it Stephen, the first martyr in the early church? He's stoned to death, and as he's being stoned by these people that hate them, he stands up and he sees Jesus standing ready to receive him. And he says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How was he able to do that? Because he had a faith that was real. Nothing could stop him. Nothing could quench him. It's why Paul and Silas, when they're thrown in prison, they're singing songs in the midst of the prison, at midnight, in the inner cell, in the dark. The other prisoners are listening to them. How could they do that when outwardly they had been beaten and mocked, wrongfully treated, and chained in a damp, dark prison cell? How could they do that? Because they had a faith that had been purified. And guys, whether you know it or not, because we all acknowledge, like, we, you know, we're like, no, I, I just want, I want real gold. I got some bills that need to be paid. Guys, no, that, that, that's nothing. Even that will actually perish. And that's the contrast here. He says it's perishable, but your faith isn't. And guys, what God is doing in your life, whether it is divorce or disease or being mocked or being slandered or being gossiped about if it is a trial a various trial in your life he wants to refine your faith because in the end he says it's going to result in praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ he wants you to have something that's actually valuable and here's the second thing that he's doing in this purification process is he wants us to understand how if, if we have it just how valuable it is but he also <coughs> doesn't want you to think that you have something that's valuable when in reality it's really not. If you heard of fool's gold, find fool's gold in it, it glimmers and it shines a little bit and you think you've got something, but if you heat that up, nothing's going to be purified. It's just going to disappear. Several years ago, uh, we were living down Sugar Creek and uh, my boys had been upstairs um, in uh, just a room where we just had storage stuff and they'd been up there getting into boxes and stuff and they came back down and they said, Daddy, come here, come here. I was like, oh boy, what could this possibly be? And so we go around the corner and, they, and he goes, come here, come here. And I remember Rowan, he, he was like this. He goes, look. And he had all this Monopoly money. He thought that it was the real thing. And he, and he was so excited to share it with me. And I said, um, well, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I just kind of let him go. But, but can you imagine if he would go on living his life thinking that what he has is very valuable when in reality he has nothing at all? And I say that because this morning it's very possible that here and all over is that, that there are people that you think you have something of great value, but in reality, all you've got is monopoly money. All you have is a man-made religion that's been handed down to you by your parents. And again, best in time, I mean, my kids go to church, they're in kids' church now, I'm for it, like, like that, that's all good and fine. But you, do you, yourself, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have a faith that will not perish? Do you have a faith that is the real thing, that is the victory that overcomes the world? And I'm not telling you you have to 
have some sort of supernatural writing in the sky that you just need to get a little bit louder, dance a little bit more, clap a little bit more. I'm saying, do you, do you even just, do you just have a mustard seed? Do you have the real thing? And it is God's mercy to all of us when he allows trials to come into our life to either refine and purify and show the value of what we really have or also to show that we have nothing at all so that we could say, I've been holding on to monopoly money. I've been holding on to fool's gold and I need the real thing. And if that's what you've experienced in your life in the midst of trials, that you don't have the real thing, listen, yeah, that's bad news, but there's good news. Is that you can turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and ask him to fill you with his spirit and have the real thing. And in the end, this is going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what's really interesting about this, as I was saying this, this past week, is this last little phrase here in verse 7, that this purified faith will result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, there's, there's, um, it, it's like intentionally ambiguous. What I mean by that is, is that is the praise, honor, and glory for those who have the purified faith when Jesus returns? He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or is, it, is the praise, honor, and glory for Jesus Christ? Because of our purified faith. And when something is intentionally ambiguous in the scriptures, sometimes it's, it's both. It means that we will receive a crown of glory from, from Jesus because of just simply our faith in him. That's our victory that overcomes the world. But it will also result in praise, honor, and glory to Jesus because, again, the reason our faith is victorious and overcomes the world is because the object of our faith is Jesus the one who lives forever, our living hope, um, that will never let us down. And so that's how it results. And so we looked at joy and suffering, suffering and faith, and lastly looking at faith, faith and joy. I love these last couple verses. And again, I, they're just so in my heart as we were praying and worshiping this morning as we started the service. But verse 8, he goes on, he says, though, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Two times he says that they don't see them, that we do not see him. What's interesting about this is that Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter was an apostle. Peter did see him. Peter had seen him. Peter had seen him walk on water. He had seen him feed 5,000 and 4,000 with a few loaves and some fishes. He had seen a leper who was completely leprous all over stretch out his hand and Jesus touch him and it be gone. He saw him cast out a legion of demons out of this guy. Remember they go, they go across the lake, the region of the Gerasenes, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The guy is, is naked, yelling, screaming, chains hanging off of him, cutting himself, screaming at the top of his lungs. Nobody could bind him. Nobody could fix him. Jesus says, come out of him and they're gone. And he's completely healed and sitting in his right mind. He, he, Peter, Peter had seen Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Saw it. You think, man, if I could just be Peter, that would be awesome. But Peter says here, just as Jesus told Thomas, John chapter 20, he says, no, no. He says, Thomas, you, um, have you believed because you've seen? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. You guys have no idea this morning 
that if you have a real sincere faith in Jesus, just how blessed you are. The reason you're blessed is because if you have a real, authentic, non-fool's gold, but real gold, faith in Jesus Christ, it is because God has done a miracle in your heart. And this is where we got you know, to work with Peter here in his long run-on sentence. But just earlier in the sentence, at the beginning, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He did this. That if you have faith and trust in Jesus, you are blessed because God has done a miracle in your heart. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Why? Because he has changed something on the inside of you. Folks, there is no greater miracle than this. Seeing Jesus walk on water and seeing him heal the lepers and raise the dead, yes, glorious, but there is no greater miracle than the new birth where God causes those who were once dead in their unbelief to see and to believe in him, even though we've never seen him with our physical eyes. He does this miracle in us <coughs> for his honor and for his glory, but that honor and that glory comes through our joy. This love and this faith, and again, there's a lot that could be said there. This is not, again, and I've been hammering on this the last couple weeks, but it's just because it's been coming up in the text that faith is not just mental assent. The demons have faith, and they tremble, James says. They do not have a saving faith. Saving faith, and, and you can see the connection here in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you what? You love him. Though you do not now see him, you what? You believe in him. What is saving faith? It's not just a faith that says, yes, I acknowledge that that's true, like a robot. It's faith that looks at this and says, yes, I believe it, and I love it. That is saving faith. And I'm telling you this this morning in love. I don't know anybody's heart in here other than my own. But if you do not love him, you are not born again. If you do not have an ounce of love in your heart for Jesus Christ, then I urge you this morning, be born again. Turn to him. Acknowledge that you do not have this love. Repent of not loving that which is the most lovely thing in all of the universe. Being a Christian is not just acknowledging facts with our brains like we learn in math class. That's not what it is. It is a supernatural experience where the Spirit of God causes your heart to awaken to the glory of Christ. And by the grace of God, I pray, God, this is every week as we pray in the back and here. I, if I had to sum it up, not, not the only thing, but I want to preach consistently in a way that by the grace of God, and it's all the work of His Spirit, but I want to preach in a way that causes people to think that they are born again, but aren't really born again, to know that they are not really born again so that they could be born again. Are you with me? I do not want to give you 
False assurance. I want, and again, I, I want you to know. I want you to know that you were born again. That you have faith that doesn't just acknowledge that it's true. Sure, that's part of it, but that also loves him. And you can sit in church your entire life and acknowledge certain things to be true, but not truly love him, and therefore you are not born again. And I, and I just pray that God in his mercy and in his kindness to us would do this miracle every week. That he would do this miracle, whether all at once or little by little or whatever, I don't care, but that he would open the eyes of our heart. That we would be able to see him and behold him. And he is glorified through our faith, this real faith, because it causes a supernatural joy. A joy that, and you got to love Peter here, man. It's just like he's grasping for words. And this is what happens when you begin to talk about this glorious God Almighty that we serve. You say things at times that don't even make sense. Like he says here, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what? You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. What? You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. We're rejoicing so much that we can't even express how joyful we are. That's the way you talk sometimes when you talk about the joy of what God does in somebody's heart when you've been born again. <coughs> and his point here is that God um, is working to purify our faith. And when our faith becomes purified, outwardly the fruit of that faith is joy. Let me show you this, this last chart here. Real, real, this is kind of some nerdy, some nerdy stuff. But have you ever heard of the, the Yerkes Dotson Law? I'm sure everybody, you know, studies the Yerkes Dotson Law all the time. Um, but the Yerkes Dotson Law is just what, kind of what this chart displays here is that, uh, and you can apply this to like anything. So, for example, let's just talk about like getting physically fit or working out, just as an illustration, is that. If, if you want, here's kind of the paradox, is that if you want your body to be um, running at peak performance, you need to subject your body to certain levels of stress. So in other words, I want to lose weight. What do I need to do? I need to make my body go and run, do something that it does not want to do. I need to subject it to stress in order that my body will be able to perform at an optimal level. You follow me? Okay? Now think about what we've talked about this morning. Okay? Is that Jesus has allowed these necessary various trials, again, for a very specific purpose, to come into our life so that our faith would be optimum, so that our faith would be purified. That would be the real thing. That our faith would be as purified as it can possibly be. And when we have a faith that is purified as it can possibly be, here is the fruit of it and how Jesus is glorified through it. Is that the fruit of our faith is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And that is good news for us because we get to experience it 
but guys, it is also the most powerful witness to a watching world. You know, in the church, I, uh, I don't say I chuckle. I, I chuckle sometimes um, because I, I believe there's value in some of this or whatever, but like I chuckle sometimes at the way that man is always strategizing to figure out how to reach the world. How are we going to do it? And, and hear me, there's a part of that that's good. And we need to go to the unlost people groups and like we're, you know, reach people around you and be strategic. Like think through that. That, that. That's great. Do it. Okay. Not against it. However, God has a way more effective way. And here's his way. He brings a load of junk into your life that should cause you to want to despair. And it should cause you to want to give up. And it should cause you to want to curse him and to give up. But if you have a faith that is real, instead of making you want to give up and curse him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And the watching world goes, what? That's, that's his means of reaching the world. Peter's going to go on later on in this, in this book. Um, I believe it's chapter 2, but he says, uh, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that always saying there is, we, we rejoice. What's our evangelism strategy? To rejoice in him, even when things are hard. And so guys, if you're suffering this morning and you're not just suffering, but I'll tell you one of the hard things about suffering is that sometimes I'm even willing to suffer, but my first thing when I begin to suffer, things begin to get hard, whatever it is, I want to just retreat. And I want to just go suffer by myself in a closet somewhere and kind of lick my wounds. And if you're suffering this morning, and you're not just suffering, but people are watching, and you're annoyed by it. If I can be real honest, I can kind of annoy you. Can get annoyed by it sometimes. Here's what I want to say: is that guys, don't waste this opportunity. Don't waste it. God has sovereignly allowed the difficulty in your life. And listen, I, I already said earlier in the sermon, I'm not telling you you have to be fake. I want to give you permission to grieve. But in the end, my prayer is that he would again do a work in your heart to where you, we are all able to stand in no, matter what, in no matter what suffering it is that we're going through. That we would be able to stand and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Amen? That's what he wants. That's what he wants to do with us. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. All I want to do in the closing today before we take communion, um, I want to do two things. I mean, I'm going to go do communion here in a second, but, but also after that, I'm going to come down front. And if you're suffering or hurting, and again, you get to decide if you're in that category this morning, but in something, a very specific trial, um, I want you to come down front. I just want, we just want to pray together, okay? But as we close here, I just want to remind you too that 
The reason we can have joy in the midst of it is because we have a Savior who perfectly understands. He just, man, you, one of the things we say sometimes when we're going through trials, or at least I say, see if this resonates with anybody, you say, nobody understands what I'm going through. You ever said that? Nobody understands. Nobody gets where I'm at. And that, you know what, that may be true, horizontally, but not this way. Jesus knows. Oh, he knows. I just want to read this, Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows, he is called. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no one, had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for them. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you know. <coughs> you know every hurt. In here, in this community, around the world, you know every hurt. And Father, um, you understand it. And I just pray this morning that you draw near. And that you would do the miracle that we just had described for us by Peter in his letter. That you would cause us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because you, the man of sorrows, went through it and you now live in us. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand with me if you're helping serve communion.